on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you're a first time listener. And so for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word. Maybe they have a particular question or issue they'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. You can call us locally at 843-525-1859. Or uh, you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. When you call or email, you can be totally anonymous. Some people like to go on the air live, and we always give preference to live callers. And still others, uh, they just um, want to dictate it and hang up. And so we're happy to receive your question, however you may give it to us this morning. Great as always to be here, Rick. And Indeed it is. And uh, we've got a number of questions, so let's get to them. A caller would like to know which version of the Bible is the most accurate translation and the one that you would recommend. Well, uh, I preach out of the New American Standard, the NASB. And interestingly, you will find most expositor pastors use the NASB uh, on our own station. Uh, we have Chuck Swindoll. We have David Jeremiah. We have John MacArthur. Uh, those are people who are uh, Erwin Lutzer, all committed to expository preaching where you verse by verse go through a text of scripture. And uh, I think it's very difficult to, to beat the NASB. What you want to have is what we call a modern literal translation. And there are different uh, translation philosophies that are used when people approach the scripture. Uh, there's a dynamic equivalent. There's a formal equivalent. Uh, so I suppose, you know, if you put it on a spectrum, on one end, you could have super literal. On the other end, you could have super paraphrase. Uh, on the super paraphrase uh, side, you would have things like the Living Bible. Uh, and even within the paraphrase translations, uh, you have degrees of paraphrasing. The Living Bible was an attempt by uh, a man who didn't really even know any uh, Hebrew or Greek uh, to take the Bible and to put it in a format that his children could understand. So he actually uh, did the book of Galatians and he brought it to his Sunday school class one day and they said, this helps us to understand it. And so he ended up doing the New Testament, eventually the whole Bible. Um, it is a paraphrase. And like with any paraphrase, uh, if you paraphrase my words, you can give the essence maybe of what I say, but not all the fine nuances. And you'll probably miss a lot. And there are some paraphrases that are really terrible. Uh, the good news for modern man that came out, that was done by a man who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. 
So how good would his paraphrase be, especially being lost? I mean, do you have to believe in the resurrection to be saved? Yes, you must believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised them from the dead, the scripture affirms. So one, if you have someone who's lost and unregenerate, you wonder how accurate their translation will be. Uh, then you have the message that's done, and, and that's really a terrible paraphrase. And unfortunately, of all presses that it was done on, it was done by NAV Press, and which is typically a conservative press. And I don't think they want to lose it because it's made them millions and millions of dollars. But if you study it carefully, you discover there's a lot that he left out and rewrote. Uh, for instance, the sin of homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6 is gone. What happened to it? Well, you know, there are things like that. And by the way, I have taught a course on bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. And I think it's in section six of the course. You go to searchthescriptures.org and we have the Institute of Biblical Studies and a number of courses that are offered that people can earn a Bible certificate for. And I think it's section six of bibliology where I do an evaluation of the various English translations and the strengths and weaknesses. At the other end of the spectrum, a super literal translation, you'd have like an interlinear Bible. And if you read directly from an interlinear, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to most people because in Greek, word order determines emphasis and other things. And so typically in English, we have subject, verb, object. Not necessarily in Greek. You can have the verb first. Uh, you can change word order for emphasis. And so it's just a different way to structure language. Uh, then there are translations that are committed to both literalness and readability. And obviously with any translation of the Bible, there's a certain amount of interpretation that goes on, but in some translations more than others. So like the NIV was very popular. In fact, it's still the number one most popular translation of the Bible. And I, I suppose the NIV 84 was okay. Uh, but I wouldn't want to teach from it because uh, a lot of the fine nuance was lost. Uh, they had two goals, readability and literalness, but they put readability over literalness. And so they did a lot of uh, translation for you. And so you have folks who um, would interpret pronouns and things like that. And I will say, because I had two professors who were on the translation board of the NIV and both of those guys told me they had non-inerrantists that were working on that translation of the Bible. And again, to me, that's unfortunate. If you, if you have people who don't start with an absolute commitment to the uh, authority of God's word, that's not healthy. Uh, they wanted to come out with another edition of the Bible called the TNIV, which is today's New International Version. Uh, the uh, purpose of creating this new translation was to make it more gender sensitive, gender neutral. And I suppose there are some places where maybe uh, for clarification purposes, man doesn't mean men in deference to women, but people in general. And we use it that way in English, you know, we speak of mankind. And so I suppose you could put people there instead of man. Uh, but with that said, uh, they went far beyond that. And uh, they created a translation, which initially said they weren't going to do. In fact, they had a hundred uh, people who formally protested. And I put my name on the list as a formal protester of the scripture, not in the top 100, but I was in the top 500 and it was presented to Zondervan and they said, we won't do it. And they left that meeting. James Dobson, who you hear every morning here at WAGP, he actually led that drive 
And uh, they went out and did it anyway. And then three years later, to people's shock against what they promised they wouldn't do, they produced it. Now, in 2010, a new translation came out, which is the new NIV. So in what they did, and that came out in paper in 2011, it was on computer in 2010, but the new NIV is not the NIV 84, but it's kind of a blend of the TNIV and the NIV. And again, if you're interested, I go through these translations. I show where they actually changed the meaning of the text in order to make it gender sensitive. So if you have a singular pronoun, he, and you change it to they, that changes what God one wrote. And as you will see in some of the illustrations I give, it changes the actual meaning uh, the ESV has become very popular now and it's a decent translation. And, and let me just say that in spite of, you know, man's uh, foolish uh, approaches, you know, still even these looser translations, I'm, I wouldn't include the paraphrases in them. Like the, the message, I, I just, the message is just terrible. And I wasn't really in tune to it when it first came out. I thought, oh, nav press, this would be good and didn't pay much attention. Then I actually started reading it. I thought, this is absolutely terrible. And so if you ever hear me quote the message, it's an old, old tape. And if I could edit those out, I would. Uh, in either case, uh, I think uh, the ESV is a decent translation. And so a lot of the guys who are using the NIV and, and many of them are not expositors. And there's a real need in the modern church for expository preaching. So in a lot of churches, a text of scripture is read, but it's not really explained. And so God's people aren't being fed word by word, verse by verse. And that's what produces mature Christians. And we have a model for that, not only in the Acts of the Apostles, but in the Old Testament. For instance, Ezra stood up. And the pulpit was above God's word, uh, above the people. It was elevated, not because the pastor's above the people, but because the people were saying by symbol, we are under the authority of God's word. And so Ezra and the very scribes would read the scripture and then they would give the meaning to it. They would explain it much like uh, Philip explained to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, uh, the meaning of the text, much like uh, Peter, when he stood up on the day of Pentecost and you just have a snippet out of his sermon but he explains the meaning of a psalm that David wrote. Uh, and this is very, very important for our day. God raises up teachers in the church. We're looking at this in our series on pneumatology on Wednesday nights. In fact, we'll be looking at the verse where it says, you have no one to teach you and how the Holy Spirit plays in the role of teacher. And yet he gifts men and, and women to be uh, teachers in the local fellowship. So a lot of good translations, there's strengths and weaknesses, I suppose, in any translation. Sometimes there's not a single English word that can capture the meaning of a word. And if you're trying to do a word for word correspondence and you don't want to, you know, amplify a Greek word with three or four words. In fact, there's a translation called the Amplified Translation. It's kind of a paraphrase with a lot of amplification. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, then you have to pick a word. So for instance, when we began the program this morning with second Timothy two fifteen, today, I quoted the King James study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth reads a little bit uh, differently in the new American standard Bible. And there in second Timothy, it says, be diligent, present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, 
handling accurately or rightly dividing as the King James says the word of truth. So one translation says study, the other says be diligent. Well, which is right? Well, the Greek word that's used here means to study, but it doesn't refer just to any kind of study, but to a, a diligent study. You can study for three hours in the library and leave and not really have accomplished anything. You can read uh, 50 pages out of some history book, daydreaming the whole time and not really have studied it or learned it. And so he's speaking about a diligent study. So the NASB in trying to choose a word, put the emphasis on the diligence behind that study. And the King James did on the study itself, which is correct. They're actually both right. But again, if you're trying to do a word for word correspondence, sometimes uh, you have to pick one. And that's where it can be helpful sometimes to have a couple of different translations and sometimes to give the different nuances on the word. You will hear a Bible teacher who will say, well, the King James says this, the NASB says this, the ESV says this, the Net Bible says this, the, uh, the YLT says this, and you can get the, uh, the, the meaning and the, the nuance of what's being uh, taught. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's a great question, and it's an important question uh, that people need to ask today. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our caller that we just received a second ago said that he was in a conversation with someone who said that uh, he believed his pastor was a Mason. First, was the caller correct to tell his friend that he needed to leave that church and find one with a Bible-believing pastor? And second, should the caller's friend ask the pastor point blank if he is a Mason? Well, you know, a pastor should be willing, I suppose, to answer any question of theology that you present to him. I mean, there might be some personal question that it's none of your business, but there are certainly questions of theology and practice of theology that are important. Now, I'm not saying that this pastor, I don't know who he is, is not a Bible-believing Christian. He may be a very much of a Bible-believing Christian and believe in the total infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible, and he may just be ignorant on Freemasonry. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention some years ago in the 1980s, uh, they put out a two-volume study. I have it in my library on Freemasonry. And the reason they did is because a number of uh, different Christian leaders, uh, Norman Geisler, who was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, John Enkelberg and others, began to challenge Christians who were engaged in Freemasonry. And so it got a lot of Southern Baptists in their leadership thinking about it. So they commissioned an official study to discover that approximately at the time, some 800,000 Southern Baptists and pastors were involved in Freemasonry. Now, for a lot of people who were engaged in these things, it's no different from, you know, the exchange club or the rotary. And they see it as an opportunity to maybe meet people in the community and talk to them about the Lord and uh, maybe to uh, engage in some community project that reflects, you know, Christian values. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they join the Masons for that reason. In fact, I would say the vast majority of Masons that you meet, they have no idea what Freemasonry is really even about and how it has uh, over the uh really uh, past few hundred years uh, developed into a formal theology. Uh, I think I became most aware of it in the early 80s when I actually saw a Freemasonry study Bible. And uh, I, I kind of wish I had had my own copy of that. It would make some great illustrations. But it was just filled with a lot of heresies. 
And so, you know, you get to go to the big lodge in the sky, not necessarily through Jesus, but through Freemasonry. Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And as people move through the various degrees of Freemasonry, um, the more they get involved, whether they know it or not, the deeper they are getting into a worldview that is antithetical to the word of God. So, you know, again, I, I don't want to attack your pastor here. It may just be ignorance. But I think if he knew what the scripture said in what Freemasonry taught, and I'm assuming he knows the former, but probably not the latter, he would uh, he would probably leave the Masons. I would hope he would have enough uh, spunk in him to say, well, I don't care if, you know, my friends are going to get mad at me because now I realize what they teach. And I, I would hope he would do what's right because he knows it to be right. And uh, we are called to separate on some things. You know, there are certainly secondary and tertiary issues that Christians sometimes separate over that are not essential to biblical fellowship. But when you're talking about the way of salvation and uh, getting into heaven through Jesus alone and not through good deeds and other things, then those aren't secondary issues. Those are those are uh, doctrines that are totally contrary to scripture and that would lead people not into heaven, but into hell. So anyway, I hope that helps and maybe we'll give you some perspective. All right. We had an email that came in from Sven in Tallahassee, Alabama. Uh, he says, recently, some friends of mine are, were conducting a private Bible study about a sermon we heard on predestination. The sermon was very Calvinistic. Now, we don't usually get stuck on denomination, and we're sure that John Calvin did not intend for his theological study to become its own denomination. There are many scriptures that support the idea of God's choosing those that follow him based on his knowledge before the creation. My question is, does God choose us individually and not others? Or do we all get called at some point in our lives and make the conscious decision to reject the gospel? I remember you preaching on this on numerous occasions, but cannot remember the details of the sermon. Would you also send some links or notes on the subject? God bless. Well, I think if uh, you wanted to do a super in-depth study, you might want to listen to my series on Romans, specifically the national section of the book of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11. 1 through 8 is doctrinal, 9 through 11 is national, and then when you come to chapter 12 through the end of the book, you move through the applicational section of the book. Um, let me just first begin by saying that all Christians believe in the doctrine of election. All Christians that are biblical Christians believe in the doctrine of election because you have direct verses like this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So he chose us and from that word chose is a Greek word that we get our word elect from. So it's not a matter of do we believe God chooses? That's not the issue. The issue at hand is how does God choose? And certainly there are people who think that Christ chose just a certain group of people to be saved and he either ignored the rest or some would who teach double predestination would say he chose the others to go to hell. Well, Look, when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, in, in let me just say, there are mild Calvinists, there are moderate Calvinists, and there are hyper-Calvinists. 
So sometimes, you know, in fact, I, there used to be a Christian organization years ago where you would look for uh, a pastor. And when a pastor filled out a form, he would rate himself as mild, moderate or hyper uh, in terms of his view of Calvinism. And Calvinism really is a very broad subject. It, it relates to every dimension of theology, not just soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Soto means to save. And so soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. It relates beyond that to every realm of doctrine. And it comes down to, believe it or not, your view of the people of Israel. And so John Calvin actually did intend to start his own denomination. Um, you, you say, well, he never intended. Well, he actually did. Now it wasn't Presbyterianism. That's what it evolved into where, um, they became known as Presbyterians, but you know, in Geneva, he started a theocracy. He had Michael Silveltis burned at the stake for what he considered to be heresy. And he felt like he was right in the center of God's will for doing that. And his rationale was that the church had become the new Israel. So when John Calvin, when you, when you come to some of these passages, there's an explanation for a number of them. For instance, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, there it is, chosen, elected, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that it might produce a changed life, that you might obey Jesus Christ. And so God chose us. How did he choose us according to his foreknowledge? Then it becomes an issue of how do you define foreknowledge? And so if you looked in a Calvinist dictionary, so to speak, those who are in the reformed faith would often say, well, foreknowledge is God's lovingly choosing some for salvation while overlooking, or some would say choosing others for damnation. Again, there are some believe in single predestination, some double predestination. So they take the word foreknowledge to refer to God choosing some. Well, uh, I don't think that's the nuance of the word. It's two words put together from Greek, prognosko. Pro gives us our prefix directly in English, pre. So we speak of something that is pre or before. Gnosko, we get our English word uh, Gnostic from it. And so it means to gather before knowledge. You say, well, are there examples in the Bible where it doesn't mean to choose, but prior knowledge? Well, even Peter, a little bit later here, let me turn over to his second epistle. And in second Peter uh, chapter three, we find the verse here. Here it is. Um, he says, you therefore, beloved, this is Second Peter three seventeen. knowing this beforehand, he's talking in this context about those who are untaught, who distort the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, having this prior knowledge, it's the word proganosco, where you know something in advance. Uh, recently, I was uh, doing a sermon in Acts 26 and uh, the, a word caught my attention from Acts 26. And let me just turn there because again, it's the word prognosco where it means uh, beforehand knowledge. Um, Paul is, uh, uh, it says, uh, so then all Jews, he's kind of sharing his testimony, know my manner of life from my youth up, 
which from the beginning was spent among my own nation in at Jerusalem since they have known about me for a long time previously. It's the word pro-gnosko. They knew certain things about me beforehand, previously. So I do believe in election. Every Christian does. The question is, how does God elect? And I believe God elects on the basis of his foreknowledge, his prior knowledge. And so God in eternity past, because he knows everything, if God didn't know everything, he wouldn't be God. But God knowing everything, those who would be saved and those who would not, those who would receive Jesus, those who would reject him, does not in any way go against your free will. Uh, God knows who is going to be saved. He can write their names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That doesn't change your free will. So God can look down the carters of time and see those who would say yes to Jesus Christ. Uh, And he can see those who would say no. Those who would say yes are the elect. Those who will say no are the non-elect. The elect of the whosoever will, the non-elect of the whosoever won't. And so the point of rub really comes not with passages like Ephesians 1 or 1 Peter 1, but passages like Romans 9. But if you start on the presupposition, and this is why I said it comes all the way back to Israel, that the church has replaced Israel and that the church is the new Israel, then you're going to read that section of scripture through a different lens. And of course, Calvin I'm not sure I would have done better, but he comes out of Roman Catholicism and the whole idea that God was done with the Jews. The seeds for that theology actually came from St. Augustine. And if you've read the works of Augustine and he's an interesting fellow to read, um, you, you read some things that are very helpful and then some things that are kind of disturbing. If you go to Yad Vashem, which is the quote unquote Holocaust museum there in Jerusalem, uh, one of the first, very first um, uh, displays you come to is you see quotations by Augustine, Calvin, and Luther about the Jewish people. And to me, they're very embarrassing. And, you know, I have a friend who's an Orthodox rabbi in Jerusalem. And so I've had to kind of explain to him, you know, that Calvin and Luther and Augustine were wrong and they were not representing in many respects, true Christianity in reference to how we are to understand Israel. And I explained to him that there are evangelicals today. You know, you got John Piper. I don't hate John Piper. John Piper's a good guy. He's got the gospel. But John Piper says that Israel's no different from Uganda. He's never been to Israel. Um, He has no desire to go there, he said. Um, And I can see why. If it's different than Uganda, then why why, why would he necessarily want to go to Israel? But he starts from reformed theology. And again, the word has been robbed. Do I believe in reformation theology? Yes, I'm getting ready to go to the Ukraine and and lecture in some colleges there on reformation theology. Uh, Do I believe in it? Absolutely. But the word has been robbed from Christians, like the word charismatic. Do I believe in spiritual gifts? Yes. But the word charismatic now refers to a particular type of Christian who believes in just certain gifts. And so, listen, not all those who were involved in the Protestant Reformation believe that God was done with the nation of Israel, but Calvin did and Luther did. And they said some embarrassing thing about the Jewish people. I've heard Christians try to rationalize and say, well, they didn't really mean this. They meant it. They said it. Uh, I've gone back and read their works in the context of what they said. 
Um, and so if you start with the fact that God's done with Israel, and that's what the Roman church taught. Augustine planted the seeds for it. And the church is the new Israel. They just put a different spin on it. So they said, well, it's not the Roman Catholic church that's the new Israel. It's the body of Christ, those who've been born again. Same theology, just applying it to those who are born again. That's not true. We're not the new Israel. God's not done with Israel. So they took a lot of uh, Catholic doctrine and just put a different spin on it. And so baptism, yeah, we'll still baptize infants, just a different spin. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 start there. And I go through all of those passages, especially in Romans 9, look at the Old Testament quotations uh, in their original context. And it really changes the way sometimes Calvin taught on it. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we've got a live caller waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Pastor. Um, I had a question. I know the Bible does not contradict itself. I was reading through Genesis again this morning, and Genesis 1, 27 through 28, God made man and blessed them. And then I get to Genesis 2, 5, and it says there was no man, and in 2, 7, it says, then God breathed life into man. Can you help me understand that? Sure. So Genesis 1 is kind of an overview of the six days of creation and what God did on each day of creation. When you come to Genesis chapter two, he's giving detail, especially as it related to the sixth day of creation, which uh, God creates Adam and Eve on. So, you know, your liberal theologians would say, oh, you know, the guy who wrote Genesis, there's multiple authors and uh, there is a popular theory that came out of uh, liberal theology in Germany that made its way into the United States. It's still taught a lot of colleges, universities and seminaries. It's called the JEPD theory. And they say there are multiple authors uh, to uh, the uh, first five books of uh, the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Well, Jesus believed there was just one author and he believed that one author was Moses. And so I go with Jesus on it. So when I come to Genesis 2, um, God is giving, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in that day, the Lord God made earth and heaven. He's going into a deeper, more nuanced explanation. Uh, for instance, he created man, the Bible affirms in Genesis 1 on the sixth day, in Genesis 2, he tells us how he created man and the free will that he had given man. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat from it, you shall certainly die. Um, you discover in you know Genesis 2 how he made Eve and how the Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. He said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then finally he says, it is not good. And of course, he had given a task uh, to Adam that's described earlier in the account. Remember, the chapter divisions are artificial, but they are helpful to find our way around the scripture. And he had Adam um, name all the various animals. And, and so, you know, Adam, you know, some people think he's just kind of some stupid, you know, knuckle dragging, you know, pre caveman, but he's really a pretty bright guy. In fact, I think we were a lot smarter probably before the fall than we are now. And he, in the Lord God brought, uh, each of the animals to him to see what he would name them. So he had to name each of the critters and then he had to remember the name of the critter, you know, to me, that's pretty, he's a pretty sharp guy. 
in either case, um, when he would have done that, he would have seen, you know, there's a counterpart for each of these different animals, but there's no counterpart for man. And man is not an, an animal. He's not a, an evolved animal. The animals in man were made on the same day. Um, but God was showing Adam his need and he is affirming, uh, the role that a woman is going to play in his life. So Genesis two is like really important. Number one, it, it's, it's an affirmation of, of marriage, which, you know, Genesis one doesn't teach, you know, the woman is presented to him and he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. It's a play on words. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the old, old English, uh, it, she shall be called womb man, womb man, W-O-M-B-M-A-N. But it's kind of hard to say womb man without spitting. So, you know, eventually, you know, we drop the B and we just say woman. She's the man with the womb, so to speak. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, man. For this cause, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Well, what did a father and mother have to do with Adam and Eve? When God makes this statement, they are the only two people existing on the earth and neither of them had a father and mother because they're a direct creation of God. Well, this is where God institutes marriage. So Genesis two is just a further explanation and dialogue of Genesis one in no way contradictory, but in every way explaining some of the details that Genesis one doesn't give us. And for good reason, because I mean, we could spend hours and I have several sermons just on Genesis two. In fact, that might be helpful to you to go to my Genesis series at searchthescriptures.org. I preached 50 some messages on the book of Genesis. I think it was 58 or maybe it was 61. And, but if you go there, uh, you'll hear the messages on Genesis two and how I interplay them with Genesis one. And I think that would be really helpful to you. Great question. Let's go to the next one. Rick. All right. 843-525-1859. Or if you'd like to email your question, you may do so at tbl at wagp.net. Luke from Beaufort writes, uh, in reading 2 Chronicles 18, we learn of Micaiah prophesying against King Ahab. Verses 19 to 22 struck me in that it seems to read that God allowed an angel to become a lying or deceiving spirit in the mouths of the false prophets. God is sovereign, but at the same time, God cannot lie. Can you help me understand a little better? All right, I've just turned there to Second uh, Chronicles 18, and um, it's a, uh, an alliance that <clears throat> in this chapter of Scripture that's formed between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. If you remember, there was a time in uh, Israel's history as God had prophesied to Solomon that his kingdom was going to be torn in two. He said, uh, because of the relationship I had with your daddy, David, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime but it will happen through your son's life. And so Solomon, because of his compromise in his heart, God says, I'm going to split your kingdom in two. And of course, when he dies, his son comes to the throne and his son doesn't listen to the wisdom of the older men, but to the younger men. And he says, you think my daddy taxed you bad? You haven't seen anything yet. And he mistreats Israel and 10 of the tribes form the northern kingdom that's called Israel and two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, 
form the southern kingdom that's called Judah. Um, So that can be a little confusing sometimes because initially it's all called Israel. But there comes a point in biblical history where just the 10 northern tribes are called Israel and the two southern tribes are called Judah. So uh, Jehoshaphat is in the southern kingdom. He's the king of Judah. He's like the fourth king in that line. And Ahab, uh, I did a series on Ahab and Elijah. Uh, He's the seventh king and a really wicked king. So that's the setting. And so as you read through first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, you read about all these Kings and they're reigning at the same time. That's because there's a Northern and Southern kingdom. So let me bring it into the context. Uh, I'm going to pick it up here in verse 12. It's kind of a lengthy passage, but the phone's not ringing off the hook. It's all coming through email today. So that's fine. I'll take a little time on it. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the King. So please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. Uh, They form this alliance where they want to uh, join uh, armies and go against Ramoth Gilead, which you read about in the first part of the chapter. So please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, um, what my God says that I will speak. Boy, that should be the testimony of every pastor. What my God says, that will I, will, will I speak. Not what you want me to hear, but what God says, that I will speak. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? He said, go up and succeed, for they will be given into your hand. Then the king said, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Micaiah kind of goes tongue in cheek. The king obviously picks up on his sarcasm and he said, look, you know, what's the deal? I've told you just to tell me the truth. So he said, verse 16 says, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep, which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. So think about it. Now there's 400 prophets who are giving the king one message and they're all in full agreement. And there's one prophet by the name of Micaiah who's giving a different message. And he's actually the only one, right? He's the only one who's speaking truth. He's the only one saying what God actually said directly to him. And that's a good lesson for today because there's a lot of pastors today who have one unanimous voice and they say, well, why are you so, you know, caustic and argumentative and um, gee whiz, you know, uh, you've got so many people who differ with you. Well, we need to say what God has said, even if we are a minority of people. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord um, and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, 
the Lord, Yahweh, has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets, for the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So, you know, of course, when they go to get him, the parallel text in first Kings tells us he's in prison. So they don't like the guy, but they still want to hear what he has to say. You know, in the back of their minds, well, gee, if we get Micaiah to agree, then we're really in good shape. So the, the essence of your question, which is troublesome to some, because it seems to suggest that God is the author of deceit. But uh, it's just an example, really, I think, among other things, that God is sovereign. We had a similar question that came in last week. Um, and so if you remember, like in 1 Samuel, I think it's the 16th chapter, it is the 16th chapter, uh, there was an evil spirit that tormented Saul. And remember David, how he came and he played his harp and the uh, spirit would depart. So God dealt with his, he disciplined his. Uh, even Paul in Second Corinthians 12, he is given a thorn in the flesh. The devil is allowed to give Paul a thorn in the flesh, not because he was wicked or living in sin or anything like that, but God gave it to him as a permanent reminder. Sometimes we think of the word discipline just in a negative sense. You've done something wrong, so God is going to take you to the woodshed. Uh, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. But it's also used in scripture in a positive sense. Sometimes we're doing everything right and God brings discipline just to refine us more and to shape us more into the image of Christ. Sometimes to allow us to uh, go through a trial so that we can bring comfort as a mature Christian, having been through that trial to someone else who's going to go through the identical trial who needs mature counsel. So there are many reasons. But to quote Luther, the devil is... God's devil. In other words, God is sovereign over the devil and God can use the devil for his purposes. Now, sometimes there's a thought in people's mind that the devil has no access to God. That's not true. Uh, the devil and his fallen angels, Job chapter one, uh, have access to God. And there's coming a time when that won't happen. The devil and all of his demons and everyone else will be cast eternally into the lake of fire and God will cleanse the whole universe from evil in every respect. But right now there is access. And so sometimes God allows as a judgment, the devil to do certain things or like with Job, not as a judgment, but as a testimony of Job's greatness that Job didn't obey because he was bought out, but Job obeyed because he loved the living God. Anyway, that's a great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. You have no idea how good it is to say this again. Come moving back from Asheville. Oh, well, welcome back, my brother. Well, thank you. Uh, reading First John, I studied that the whole month of January, and he had a he had a passage in there where he spoke about there is a sin that leads to death. And I read some commentaries on that, and I was just—I'm just curious about your take on this. From what I—from what I gathered, it was perhaps a believer who, despite the fact that they were saved, would not stop sinning, and God would cause a premature death to stop this person from contaminating his church. Did I, did I understand that correctly? Or I think so. No, I, no, I think you're right on target. He's speaking here in First John 5 about prayer. And he says, and, and we know that if we ask uh, anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know we have the request which we've asked from him. So he's encouraging us to pray. 
and to basically plead the promises of God, that if God gives us a clear promise, a specific promise, then we can stand on it. Um, if I know something definitively to be the will of God, uh, there are some things we don't know to be the will of God. Uh, but if we know something is definitely, if I ask God to fill me with the spirit, that's not outside of God's will. That's a command and do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. So if I ask God to fill me with the spirit, assuming I'm not preventing him and we can certainly prevent him through pride or uh, unavailability or known sin in our life. And so the Bible talks about not grieving or quenching, but walking by the spirit. But assuming my heart is right, then God will do exactly what he says. But then continuing in this realm of prayer, he says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will um, give him life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. This, by the way, is similar to a passage that is uh, dealt with in the book of James in James chapter five, it's a, it's a often, I think, misquoted text in our day. And uh, there, there may be broad applications, but there's one initial meaning. And so he talks about people who are sick and so forth. And he said, let him, the sick person, call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord might raise him up. No, it doesn't say that. The Lord will raise him up. And if, and it's what we call a first class conditional statement in Greek, it's structured meaning since he has, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So certainly you could apply this text where, you know, there's sickness in your home and there's seemingly you've sought the Lord and there's no human solution and you want others to pray. And maybe you come to the elders of the church and they anoint him with oil and pray over him. But in the original context, he's talking about someone who is under some kind of physical sickness due to sin. And so presumably he has been disciplined by the elders of the church. And sometimes when a person is disciplined by the elders of the church, where they are removed from the church, First Corinthians five teaches us that there is a protective umbrella that comes with being a member of a church. And when elders in a church formally dismiss a person, then they can come under the rebuke of God again through Satan. This is similar to what the question that preceded it with Micaiah. Again, the devil is God's devil and God is sovereign even over the devil it's actually reported first Corinthians five, that there's an immorality among you an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the pagans, the Gentiles, namely that someone has his father's wife. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother. He said, even the pagans find that disgusting, but he says, you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. You should have exercised church discipline to this errant unrepentant brother, but they didn't. So Paul says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
So Paul was saying, I'm doing what you should have done. You should have removed him from your fellowship. And sometimes you do that. We recently exercised church discipline on a Wednesday night. That's when we typically do it from a brother who um, was not living uh, the kind of life that he should have. Now, if he's a real brother in Christ, look out, brother. God is going to deal with you on a level like you've never thought. And so sometimes sickness is one way that God, God uses what he needs to use to get our attention. It might be financial. It might be physical. In this case, it was first Corinthians five. It was physical. And I think that's what's in view in James. There's a brother who's under the discipline of the church that is done by elders in a church. You who are spiritual. And so for that reason, he comes to the elders of the church And if the elders recognize that there's genuine repentance here, then the elders can ask in faith and it's not God might restore him. God will restore him. And therefore he says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. He's talking about a physical sickness that comes through unrepented sin. And so verse 16 in the context is not talking about we sit around in a a circle like it was popular in the early part of this month new millennial where there was a number of books that came out and said, we should go to our Bible studies and confess our sins to each other. And they used James. And there was another number of books done by all these pop psychology, non exegetes who shouldn't be, you know, leading the church, but Christians like these kinds of books because they make them feel good. And they said, well, we need to sit around in our adult Bible fellowships and confess our sin to each other. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a Christian confessing his sin to the elders, not to a priest, because he's basically coming clean and said, what you said that you put me under discipline for was absolutely right. And my heart is now right. And I am repentant. And so sometimes, you know, again, this takes discernment. You know, there's a person who says, you know, I've got all this sickness. And you know that the reason they've got this sickness is because God is disciplining them. And God doesn't say, don't pray for his healing. There is some sin that leads to death, premature death. And when they're under the divine discipline, you don't, you don't come and beg God to heal the person. If they are under God's discipline, a discipline that might even lead to death. You know, God is long suffering and he is patient. It's like the little girl who, the little boy who went to the birthday party and uh, at first he, he pulls on the girl's pigtails and she says, oh, that hurt, you know. And a few minutes later, he kicks another little boy in the shins And then finally the birthday cake comes out and he blows out the candle and takes his fish and fist and smashes it through the cake. And so the mother says, you're going home. That is enough. I've had the limit. Well, sometimes we push God to the limit and we've reached the final straw. And God says, enough is enough. I've been patient with you, but now I am taking you home. So sometimes we think, you know, oh, he just had a untimely heart attack. Well, God may have wanted him to live to 70, but he has a heart attack of 60. And yet the doctor the week before said he was in perfect health. Why? Well, because sometimes God is dealing with his people. You know, we don't fear God anymore. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we don't really revere God and think that, you know, sin is any big deal. It's a big deal to him, especially to those whom are his beloved, whom he has set his affection on. That's a good question that they've asked this morning. Rick, let's go to the next one. All right. John from New Hampshire writes, I know many genuine God-loving, God-seeking, born-again Christians that by grace have poured their lives into living according to the Word of God. The evidence of their maturing faith in Jesus surrounds them, 
and as a testimony to the power of God. These friends come from many different evangelical denominations. Some differences in interpretation or truth are small, and some differences seem rather large. So my question is, even though these differences may be small, why has God allowed his church to be divided into so many small groups? Why does God allow this difference of opinion in genuinely sincere Christians that seek truth in the Word of God? Is it sin? Well, it's a question that is often asked, and no, it's not always sin. And sometimes, you know, some denominational labels are not necessarily bad. They are just reflective of maybe some practices of that church, but that church has the same uh, beliefs as maybe a church of a different stripe. So, for instance, in a lot of communities, there are, you know, pastor associations where pastors from different denominations get together. Occasionally, we have a meeting where we bring in, like we brought in Alistair Begg and Tony Evans, and, you know, we sponsored lunches, and we invited pastors from a lot of different stripes, and these brothers came, and we had a great time. Uh, Recently, we had a men's conference, and we had a lunch, and we invited 30-some pastors who came over to the Golden Corral and we had lunch together and we were just saying, hey, here's a vehicle if you want to use it. Uh, we're we're going to offer a men's conference. We're going to offer a men's wildlife supper and our heart is not to steal sheep, but um, you know, for you to be able to bring some people to hear the speaker and sometimes a smaller church doesn't have the resources to pay for a Tony Evans to come in or an Alistair Begg or to bring in some outside speaker or to pull off a wildlife supper. But those men in that church can bring an unsaved person or a brother in Christ who needs to hear the message. So when you think about the denominations, sometimes the, the, the differences were secondary. So Presbyterians, you can hear the word presbyteros. Uh, we get our word elder from it. And one of the things that distinguished uh, Presbyterians was a plurality of elders. It was a church structure that they had, and even a structure that went beyond and above, and a lot of Presbyterian um, expressions above the local church. But there was a certain structure that they believed, and that was one of their distinguishing things. John Wesley uh, came to the United States, initially to Savannah, Georgia, to preach the gospel to the Indians. And he uh, was um, unsuccessful in the trip back. He realized he wasn't a Christian, got saved in listening to Luther's uh, introduction to the book of Romans, came back and rode 80,000 miles on horseback up and down the East Coast, preached the gospel to tens of thousands. People got saved and he had a certain method to help new Christians. And he was so methodical, they called these people Methodists. So he himself never left the Anglican church. Some division is related to sin. Like in 1 Corinthians 1, I say this. Some say, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Has Christ been divided? Um, Did Paul die for you? No. And so some division is sinful and it's wrong. And we need to repent of it. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, Another perfectly good hour has passed away, but we're glad that you could join us for this hour. These are posted online at Search the Scriptures and at uh, WAGP.net if you want to listen to them later on or you have a question that you want a friend to listen to. Have a good day as you walk with Christ. 